As we continue to worship, you may want to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel, chapter 12. We'll be looking at selected scripture text this morning. However, I want to start with 1 Samuel, chapter 12, verse 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and right way. Lord, as we continue now to be in your word, we pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that you would teach us, even as uh, disciples asked of Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, that you would teach us how we can pray, Lord. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. One verse that, in the Bible, of course, there's many, but one verse that does convict me is 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, regarding prayer. And in context, it's the priest Samuel praying. So you could say the spiritual leader of Israel says that for him, it's sin against Yahweh if he stops praying for his people. So he sees his duty to labor and intercession. Well, Samuel is... An imperfect example, certainly a godly prophet, but not a perfect example. Christ, it says in Hebrews, lives to intercede for us, who is the perfect example of 24-7, always persevering, consistent prayer for his people. As a pastor, we, John, Brett, and I, seek to intercede for you and to pray for you. Part of my my duty that though imperfect I, I seek to improve in is to intercede for you, to pray on your behalf before the Lord. And there are times when I don't exactly know how to pray for you. If you're at the prayer meeting, then I hear those prayer requests. Or if we talk on Sunday or throughout the week, then Certainly, I can gather prayer information and I can pray with things that you've required from me. But there are many times, however, I have no idea in some ways uh, of how to pray for you because you, you haven't shared. But I do know what the Bible says. And so there are different verses and different passages where when I don't know how to pray for you, I'll select a passage or a verse and I'll pray that passage or that verse for you. And so I thought that this morning what I would do is basically preach on four passages, four texts that I use to pray for you, and that when you hear about these verses, perhaps also you can pray these verses for yourself and for others, as well as take application for your own use. So I'm going to be looking at four different passages this morning. 
And again, these are different passages that often come to my mind. And I use these then to pray for you. There's more that I pray for, but especially these four, and especially the past three years, four years, these verses have been specifically in my mind. And so I want you to listen to them. I didn't provide notes to all of you because you can just listen to the prayer request and then from that seek to pray this way as you understand the passage better and then seek to apply it. But number one is Second Thessalonians 3, 5, and I had mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, is a passage that I use to pray for many people. Many people that I, I know and love, I'll take this verse and pray it often. I think it's a great little verse that we can use. Second Thessalonians 3, verse 5. <clears throat> May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. The Apostle Paul in this verse is doing this type of a brief, quick prayer. How long does it take to pray this? Maybe you can do... Oh, I can look at it here. I'll start right now. The Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Okay, that was about, what, six seconds? Seven seconds. If you prayed that for a person, Lord, may you direct Tom Shuck's heart into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Would God be like, that's a worthless prayer because it was only seven seconds. I don't listen to a seven-second prayer. Or would the Lord be like, you prayed my word. You prayed my word. I'm listening. Yes. I will seek to do that. I think the Lord would would love it if we took a passage, if we took this passage and prayed it back to him. Just takes six or seven seconds. And these believers and Thessalonica, Thessalonica, they, they, they were being persecuted. You can read First Thessalonians. They had, in a marvelous way, come to Christ. They, they had a great testimony. There were some issues in the church, but they had a great testimony of faith. And they are being persecuted for their faith. And so Paul here is writing to them and through them to us and giving us a way that we can pray for others and for ourselves. And there's two great subjects here that you see that the Apostle Paul prays for. Uh, three points that we're going to look at here, but, but two great subjects. Uh, the first point is that notice who's doing the work here. Notice who Paul calls upon to do the work. May the Lord direct your hearts. May the Lord do this. May, may God do this. This is the work of the Holy Spirit that only God can do. As God can move the heart of a pagan king, 
Certainly, he already has, but he can also move the heart of every believer and every believer in this room. God can take that, remember the heart, that, that inner headquarters, that, that soul, spirit, mind, will, feelings, thinking, that, that, that nexus, that, that mission control center inside of you. Lord, and so you would pray, Lord, I pray for this person that you would direct, guide, put their, their inner soul on a trajectory toward the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. That's the idea when it says, may the Lord direct your hearts. If you've gone to an amusement park, oftentimes as you go to an amusement park and you try to park, eventually you'll see somebody doing what? This way, this way, this way, this way, this way, this way, and then you turn your car that way, and you come this way, and then you see this other person, and they're going this way, this way, this way, this way, this way, and they're directing you where to go, how you should park, where you should take refuge, where you should rest your car. This is the same idea here in verse 5 when it says, May the Lord direct, may it guide, may it determine to that person, you need to decide, you need to go this direction. And the direction, of course, here is the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Especially for refuge, for relief, for revival, I think is the idea in the context of Second Thessalonians, is that the Lord, Lord, I pray that you would, it could be your spouse, it could be a neighbor, it could be somebody at the church, a relative, Lord, I pray that you would take this person and get a hold of their soul and that you would lead their soul into a specific place of relief and refuge and even revival. And now, then secondly, this place of refuge, first, you can look back at the verse, is the very love of God. That a person's heart may dwell, as it were, be submerged in, taking refuge in this love of God. And here, in context, not not our love for God, but the love that is from God for us. And I don't think it's just some of you and many of you, all of you, especially the believers, need to know that God loves you. Not that I'm recommending his ministry, but there was a man named Arthur Blessed who would go around to in South America and other countries and he would carry this wooden cross and drag it behind. I'm not recommending his theology or his ministry, necessarily. Okay, So he would take this wooden cross and, and drag it around with him. And then he would go into a village and he would take this roll of stickers, orange stickers with a black smiley face on it that said, smile, God loves you. And he would stick it on people. So you would have villagers maybe in South America or, you know, wherever, Papua New Guinea, they would have these smiles, God loves you stickers on them. Well, you know what? It's not, here, this passage, it's not saying unbelievers need to hear that. Who, who needs to understand this? Believers. So right now, this morning, 
this passage, as it were, God is saying that he wants every believer, I've been a little bit silly and facetious, to have a sticker on them that says, smile, God loves you. Every believer here, then, God wants you to know this morning, no matter what you've done, what you're doing, what you will do, God loves you. God loves you. And he holds you as more dear in his heart than any created thing in the universe. The only thing that God loves more than you is who? Himself. Yeah. Jesus, the Spirit. Otherwise, you are the beloved children of God, and his love is upon you more than anything else in the universe under God. And so Paul prays here that we would understand this. Yes, certainly I do believe since God is love, you can't un-God God. You can't take love out of God. There is a general love of God, certainly for unbelievers. But here I believe it's talking about this special, distinctive love that reaches back into eternity, like in Ephesians 1, 4 to 5, where it says that he predestined us in him before the foundation of the world in love. This is the love that God wants us to understand that he has for those that are his, those that he's chosen, those that he chooses to save and regenerate. In fact, there's so many places in scripture and well, we can't look at all of them. Don't, well, you can turn there if you want to, but, you know, 1 John 4, 7 through 12 talks about the love of God. Uh, 1 John 3, 1 says what, oh, what manner of love is, is this, that we should be called the children of God. There are many places throughout scripture where God labors to help us to understand how much he loves us. For example, one of my favorite passages is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, another prayer by Paul regarding something that's very similar, the same idea of the love of God, but similar in terms of coming to this understanding of God really loves me. Ephesians 3.18, Paul prays that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That's a prayer of the Apostle Paul that we would understand. And of course, the Apostle Paul is writing the inspired word, as be, as he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit of God, this is God saying, I want you to know, believers at Pilgrim, that you have no idea how much I love you. Oh, the height, the width, the breadth, the, the depth, the, the length of how much I have love for you, believers. And when we are able to comprehend this, which verse 17 would imply that we need strength to understand how much God loves us 
And then the more that we understand this, verse 19, there's going to be more of a fullness of God in my soul. And then when that happens, verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. That is, is this prayer, in a sense, I think it is, I think it has truth in this statement I'm going to say, and that is, the more that we understand and and embrace and are impacted that that God loves me, not because I'm worthy, even though I'm unworthy, God still loves me, I'm more able to be controlled by God, filled up by God, and then I'm going to be able even to see God do greater things in my life than I ever could before. Because I understand the grace of God more. I understand Ephesians 2, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when I was dead in my sin, he made me alive together with Christ. The more, not in an academic way, but the more that my heart is is crushed and gripped and overwhelmed and humbled and thankful for his love, the more I'm going to see the Lord do great things in my life. Now, I'm spending time on this one more than the others because it's the love of God. But I'm reminded even of Romans 5. 5, Romans 5, 5. Again, just to show you, this is such, of course, a huge theme of Scripture that even though we are undeserving, even as believers, we're undeserving of that continued, free, omnipotent love of God. God keeps on loving us. Romans 5, 5. Context of Romans 5, 5 is Verse 3 through 5 is talking about that tribulation has come into our life. We're able to exalt in them because of that grace and peace that we have in Christ. But also, verse 5 says, because the love of God has been, and it's the grammar there is called a perfect, it's the idea, the love of God has been and is to this day continually being poured out into your life. So here in Romans 5, 5, when it says... The love of God has been poured out into our hearts. It's not the idea of, I have blueberry tea here. It's not the idea that God went, okay, I gave Tom my love. Go for it, Tom. I gave you my love. Go out into the world. That's not the idea. It's the idea that God poured out his love. And I'd have to stand here the whole sermon. It's he has poured out his love and he continues to pour out his love. It's not has, period. It's he has in the past and there is this continued result of, of effect of this continuing just to the idea of this subjective, if you can say the word feeling, if you want, this understanding that affects my heart that I'm being continued to be loved by God. Through the Holy Spirit he gave to me, that's the subjectiveness of it, but it's based upon, you can see, 6 through 11 uh, of the gospel. That is, when I was helpless, that's when Christ died for me. You can see that in verse 6. See, it says, for while we were still helpless, God has poured out his love into my heart through the Holy Spirit, 
This is based upon, though, this objective fact of what Christ did according to scriptures. When I was helpless, he died for me. When I was hopeless, I'm not a righteous man. I'm not even a good man. I'm a sinner, Romans 5, 8. And Christ died for us even when we were sinners. Christ poured out his love for me. God poured out his love for me. When I was hopeless, when I was helpless, I wasn't, I couldn't save myself. Then even 9 through 10, when I was hostile, when I, verse 10, when I was his enemy, that's when he reconciled me to himself. And that proves and displays this love that he's poured out into my heart. This is how much God loves us, is that he gave his son to die for us. Now, of course, we could keep going on and on. I'll just point out one more thing before we go forward, and all the others would be much briefer. But sometimes we we can miss this. Look at Romans eight thirty eight to thirty nine. I'm not going to read that whole passage. You know it well. But the end of verse thirty nine says, "And what shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord?" Now, oftentimes, again, we can put a period right there. Maybe not even a period. We actually put a what? A chapter break. But when Paul wrote this, there was not a chapter. We can separate Romans 9 through 11 from Romans 8. But Romans 9 through 11 are very closely tied to the end of Romans 8. Because in Romans 8, God has said, what can separate you from my love? Nothing in the universe can separate you from my love. Nothing. And so then Paul anticipates, what about the nation Israel? Does God still love them? Because they're spread out over the whole earth and their country is occupied by Rome. Then verse six of Romans nine says, "But it is not though it is not as though the word of God has failed." And so Romans nine through eleven, God is explaining that my love is sovereign. God's love is sovereign. It's free. It's unconditional. It's planned, and He has a purpose for it, and it's unfailing. God hasn't failed with the nation Israel. So all of that to say that this incredible love of God. God wants us to be embraced by it, to understand it's free, it's unconditional, it's almighty, it's purposeful, it's powerful, it's overcoming. And it even leads to Romans 12, by which we offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. So this is what I pray for you that you would understand that what you need at Pilgrim Baba Church is not to be loved. You don't need to be loved more. You actually need to love more. If you're a believer, and even if you're an unbeliever, you, you don't need to be loved more. The greatest person in the universe has loved you. But many of our problems surface, especially in our relationships, because we want to be loved more. This person or these people don't love me. They don't serve me. They don't notice me. They don't appreciate me. They're not thankful for me. 
And the truth of the matter is that the greatest person in the universe did the greatest thing he could ever do for you, and he died on the cross. The greatest act of love has been shown to you. And the more that we understand that, and the more that we worship God because of that, then the more we need to be loved less. That desire lessens because the love of God has been poured out in my heart. Thank you, Jesus. You you love me so much. I'm overflowing with your love. Thank you, Lord. And of course, we we could keep on going with this idea of the love of God. I'm trying to be very brief on this. God loves believers. God, yes, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for all those who are believing in him would not perish but have eternal life. Yes, and God especially loves those that are his, his bride. And my prayer is that your heart would always be directed into God's love. God loves you. But second, even it talks about, this would be much more brief, this steadfastness of Christ. Or you can say his faithfulness, uh, the stick to of Christ. Look at Second Thessalonians 3, 5 again. And this is a way that you can pray. Lord, direct You can pray for yourself, my heart into the steadfastness of Christ. Direct this person's heart into this steadfastness, this faithfulness of Christ. You can see this, and we will see it even in the book of Hebrews. That is, Christ fulfilled his mission. He is faithful. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. And even uh, Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That is, what I'm seeking to illustrate is where it says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 5, and into the steadfastness of Christ, Christ fulfilled his mission. He fought against the weakness of his human flesh, not sinfulness, but a a finite human body, against Satan's temptations, against persecution from the people and faithlessness of his disciples. But he was always 100% faithful. He completed his mission. He had radical, perfect faithfulness. Where you and I are faithless, he was always faithful. That's the first part, I think, of what it means here is direct your heart into the steadfastness of Christ because there are times, even in our greatest stick to itness, even in our greatest steadfastness toward God and toward his word, are we 100% faithful? Always? All the time? No. Even when we are at the forefront of the Christian race, and even when we are at our the, the, the best that we've ever done for Jesus, are we 100% faithful? No. But he has always been faithful to do what God and God's word and to fulfill his mission. But even in terms of keeping his promises... 
Hebrews 7.25, and I mentioned this briefly at the beginning, says, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Is Jesus, is He always trustworthy to keep His promise to intercede for you? Are there times when you fail to intercede for others? There are times where I fail to intercede for others. But will Christ ever not keep this promise? Christ Jesus will always keep his promise to intercede, to to intercede with God the Father for you. It's an incredible promise. Or, you know, Matthew 28, verse 20, he says, And behold, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. Is there a time where Christ goes, oh man, Tom blew it. He's, he's blown it. This particular sin. If I just include Tuesdays, 12,356 times. That's just including Tuesday. Is Christ going to say, I'm out. I'm going to pick Tuesdays and I'm not going to be with Tom anymore on Tuesdays. Jesus keeps his promise, always. He's 100% Faithful. This is what it's talking about in the steadfastness of Christ. There are times I could get grumpy, I could get cranky, and give somebody the cold shoulder longer than a day. But Jesus is always faithful to keep his promises. He may, in his wisdom and goodness, chastise us, but he always keeps his promises. John 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus says to his disciples that as he has left, in the same way, he's going to return. Verse 3 of John 14 says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Is Christ going to return? Or is that just a dream? It is more sure than the sun will come up tomorrow that Jesus will one day return. 100% true. And so this then, 2 Thessalonians 3, 5, is a prayer that we make on behalf of others that you would seek as your, as your refuge, as relief, as a place of revival, God's love for you. And after that, that Christ will stick to everything he said that he will do, he will do for you. So then these promises become our anchor. The love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. That becomes my anchor. That God loves me not because I I merited it by free, unconditional grace of God, for by grace we're saved through faith, this not of ourself, not of works, lest any man should boast, this grace of God, and then second, that Jesus is faithful to be who he is and to do what he said he would do, that becomes my anchor. Not not my faithfulness, not my love for God, but God's love for me and Christ's faithfulness for me. That becomes my anchor. Nothing else is my hope. Nothing else. My church going, my Bible reading, that's how good I can be, how good of a, a husband, a father, a pastor. That's not my hope. My hope is God's love and Christ 
by his grace and that perfect faithfulness and righteousness of Jesus. Now, will God delight to answer this if you pray this? God's word says, if you pray according to his will, he hears you and he will give that of what you've asked. If you want your prayers answered and you don't see God answering prayers, maybe you're not praying biblical prayers. This is a biblical prayer. Pray this prayer and see what God does. A, a second prayer I pray for you is found in 2 Timothy 1.7. And this will be briefer. 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. So one prayer I make for you when I don't specifically know that exact need, I'll pray, Lord, help these believers to refuse to be paralyzed by fear because they would know that they will have what they need to do that which they need to do. One of the prayers that, that I pray for you is, Lord, I pray for these believers that they would not be paralyzed by a faint-heartedness. They would understand that they have what they need to do what they need to do. Whatever believers, whatever God wants you to do, you have what you need to do that. There is nothing that God wants you to do, believer, that God has not already given you the resources to do that. The Lord, as a believer, since God chose you and caused you to be spiritually alive, regenerated, behold, all things have passed away. You're a new creation, a new creature in Christ. He's giving everything that you need to live for him and to do his will. You are dynamically changed. This is what the Apostle Paul basically is saying to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7. Apparently there was some type of timidity or faint-heartedness or fear that Timothy had. And perhaps he was being a little bit ashamed, verse 8. He was not being as bold or as faithful as he could be, perhaps. And so Paul is seeking to encourage him. And so I, I take this and I pray this for myself and I pray it for you and I pray it for others that we would never let fear paralyze us to do what we know God wants us to do. So first, the truth, look back at verse 7, the truth here is that God has not given us a spirit of fear, that is of faint-heartedness so that there will be some task which we know God wants us to do. It, it could be anything from picking up dog manure in the backyard. I can't do that. It stinks. It's terrible. All the way to being bold to preach Christ somewhere to forgiving somebody that sinned against you a big sin. All of those different areas can take strength. It can be 
in some way fearful to, to forgive. Because if you forgive somebody, you're letting them off the hook. Then what are they going to do to me? Teach them a lesson. Whatever the area might be, there are some things in life where we're tempted not to do it and to become paralyzed because if, if I go into the promised land and fight against those giants, I can die. And so here, Paul is encouraging Timothy and us, God is, whatever God wants us to do, let us not say no because we're afraid. Because whatever we need to that which God has asked us to do, he's already, at least spiritually, inwardly, given that to us. Look at verse 7. But if power, dunamis is a Greek word, it means ability or capability. We have, in Christ, according to the book of Ephesians and Colossians elsewhere, we have supernatural resurrection power, Romans 6, to do the right thing according to God's word. We have the power to say no to Satan. Satan can't make you sin. We have the power to say no to the devil, no to sin, and yes to God. Love, it says. Love is making glad sacrifices for the, for the others. It, it's being selfless. So you have, in Christ, the ability you need to make glad sacrifices for others and be selfless. You have that ability because when you're regenerated, your old heart is done away with and God gives you a new kind of disposition in Christ by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, then you are a super dynamic person. Whether you see it or believe it or not, you are. Is what the Bible says. Even here in verse 7, you have a new kind of, of inner person that has power and love. And even further, it says, and discipline. That might be the word which I hate the most out of all these three. <laughs> discipline. It's the idea of, it's the opposite of the word drunkenness. If somebody is drunk, you know, want to, you know, they're they're not sober. They can't control their thoughts. They can't control their actions. They're just doing all kinds of stuff. This is the idea of self-control, uh, soberness. You are able to have a sound, mind, clear, straight, organized, disciplined thinking. That doesn't mean perfection, but it means that you have an, an innate ability to be able to be clear-headed about what is right and what is wrong. You have a conscience, and then with the Spirit of God, that conscience is quickened. I think that's the idea of what verse 7 is saying. That because you're in Christ, you have this ability to, to love and a mind that can stay focused. Now, we can lose this, we can lose this power and lose this love and lose this focus if we're not in the Word, if we're not praying, if we're not confessing our sin, if we're not in fellowship with other believers, then we can be very aimless. 
But this verse is saying, innately, you have this new dynamic inside of you. So then, this is a way that I pray for you that you would understand and even have a type of surrender to this truth. And it would work out this way, that you wouldn't, and I would not as well, always have an excuse. It could be, you know, Tom, uh, I'd be, it's, you know, all the kids and I, we've picked up the, the, the poop in the backyard. It's your turn. No, but you don't understand. I have this natural aversion to dog messes. And if I pick it up, I could possibly, you know, what could happen. I, I, I can't do that. Can't, can't do it. And I'm studying right now, too, preparing a sermon for Sunday. That would be an excuse. I have, in Christ, I have the power, I have the love, and I have a clear focus to say, and you know what? I can take, it, it, it might kill me to do it, but I can take five minutes to do that which I need to do. God can give me grace. Even if I have to take a fingernail, not a fingernail, a clothespin and put it on my nose, I can still do that which I need to do. With forgiveness. You know, I, I've tried to forgive this person, but the truth of the matter is they could do it again. It's possible. In fact... The disciples said what? Lord, what if I gave this man 70 times 7 times? And Christ goes, basically, yeah, you know, not 7 times, 70 times, you know, an infinite number of forgivenesses you should give people. And I can do that. I shouldn't have an excuse. I have the power and I have the love, and I, I can have a focused mind to say, yes, I forgive you. Yes, I forgive you. I have the love. I have the power. I can have this clear-headed mind because of Christ and the power of the, and the love and the discipline of the Spirit. I can say, yes, there's forgiveness. Whatever you need to do, you can do it and not have an excuse. Whatever God wants you to do, according to his word, you can do it. Because innately, by the power of the new birth, you have a new power, a new love, and you have a new type of mind, a new type of focus. So, this morning, you can say, I'm not going to be a slave to fear. I'm not going to fear doing whatever I I need to do. If I'm going to be a slave, I'm going to be a slave to Christ. That's it. And I'm a new creature, and I have no excuses. I'm a sinner, but God saved me, and he can empower me, and he can love through me, and he can give me a clear focus on that which I need to do. Third, and we're gaining speed now. Third, and I wrote this last week, not not this week, this point. And you might understand why I say that once I'm into the point. Maybe not, but some of you might. The third thing I pray for you and for myself is from 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. 
And I'm not going to read all of that, but just verse 7 for now. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. I pray, Lord, may Pilgrim Bible Church, may the believe, may everybody here, especially believers, live in light of the end. My prayer is that you and I and all of us will live in light of the end. Not at the, the end of the book, the end of the prologue. We're not coming to the end of the book in terms of our lives. We're coming to the end of the prologue. Because once Christ comes back or we die, then we go into chapter 1 and it lasts forever. But may we live in light of the end. Knowing that there is an end, look at verse 7, the end. Did you know that, that there is an end? The end of all things is at hand. May you live in light of that. Now, since the incarnation of Christ, we have been in the end times, which requires a therefore. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore. Something is required from us because history ends. Here when it says the end of all things, it's like the idea back in Romans 5.5. 5, it's, it's another perfect, so it's a completed action with abiding results. When it says the end is near, it's the idea that the end has already in one sense happened, and then we're living in the abiding results of that. that that's why if you look at Mark 1.14 and 15, Jesus says, and the kingdom of God, is, time has been fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So as soon as Christ was incarnated, in one sense, the end times began. So if pretty soon they start this digital central bank currency and you get, and in order to get any food you want or medicine you want, you have to get something on your hand, you know, then we probably all, all say what? Oh, <laughs> okay, tribulation, you know, right, right, on, right on the cusp of it or already started. Okay, but in a very, very, very true sense, we've already been at the end. You're already at the end times now. The end times isn't tomorrow. The end times already began. We've been in the end times for over 2,000 years. Meaning, are we close to tribulation and antichrist? The, the glorious return of Jesus Christ? We are closer than we have ever, ever, ever been before. And that's not smart eschatology, that's just math, right? <laughs> we, we are closer than we ever, 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 ever have been before. Ever. We are, we are truly in the times because Christ has fulfilled all of his prophecies except for his return. And certainly the way the word looks and the way technology is, uh, who knows when the Lord is going to come back. But we are living Certainly, by what even this verse says, we are living in the end times. The end of all things is near. The end of all things has come, and it's continuing to be in the results of it even right now. 
But again, there's not a period. It says, therefore. Therefore, something is required. And we know from the book of Revelation and other passages, there's going to be a great evil. The Antichrist will rise up. There will be all these judgments of God. Christ will come back. Christ will conquer all evil. The Satan, the Antichrist, the demons, unbelievers will be thrown in the lake of fire forever and forever. Revelation 22, we will reign with him forever and ever. Glory to God. Hallelujah. That's the summation of, uh, of the end times. That's the way that the course of this whole universe is going, but then it says, therefore. So my, the, the prayer that I have for us is that we would have a true biblical eschatology. What do I mean by that? Okay, uh, going quick. When I pray, I am... I, after studying scripture, I do believe scripture teaches in a premillennial eschatology. But I have not, and I'm pretty sure I would not ever probably pray this. Lord, I pray for Pilgrim Bible Church. There are some people here who are all millennials. You're all mill. You must become premill. And, and, and I'm praying that in my prayer, God, this is so important. I could never pray that way because I don't think that's actually what Scripture does. Scripture is not necessarily pressing this. You must believe. I believe, and I think it'd be great if you believe that Christ is going to reign on the earth for a thousand years. But that's not the purpose of eschatology and prophecy in terms of its revelation being unfolded to us. It's not. For example, here it says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, what should you do? You should pray. You should love one another. You should forgive. Because soon you might see Jesus face to face. You should forgive. If somebody is an expert in eschatology, they could be Amil. And yet, be really good at forgiving people. So somebody, let's say, let's just pretend it's an all millennial is the way the end times is going to happen. So if somebody is pre-mill, and yet, you know, they've, they've used their spiritual gifts, they've loved others, they've been really prayerful, Is God going to look down at that person and be like, ah, you're a pre-mill, but you should have been all-mill? Get in the back of the line? Or, or, or even reversed. If you just took any position of how the end of the end times is going to happen, yes, I think we need to read and study and come to our own conviction on that, but in terms of your maturity in Christ? Is God going to value that maturity in Christ or to estimate, to judge that maturity in Christ based upon your position of the rapture and how the end times end? Or based upon, did you pray? Did you share the gospel? Did you use your spiritual gifts? Verses 10 through 9. 
Were you hospitable? Did you have fervent love? Were you a person of prayer? See, what I am saying is, how I pray for us is not so much, we need to understand all the nuts and bolts and nitty-gritty and and all of this of eschatology. I, I think there is a place for that, and I like studying that. But to be an expert in eschatology means that your knees are going to be so sore. Your knees are going to hurt. If you're an, an expert in eschatology, you know, we should be able to look at your knees and, oh, he's got calluses on his knees. She's got calluses on her knees. She's an expert in eschatology. Well, what, what do I mean? A person that's an expert at the end times, that is, they, they really, really believe that Jesus is going to return bodily, that there is a heaven and there is a hell. You're going to be giving yourself to prayer. And that is true biblical eschatology. You're going to be a prayer warrior. You're going to be a love warrior. You're going to be a warrior of forgiveness. And you're going to be using your spiritual gifts. And so that's why I pray for us as believers. And view of eschatology, yes, I think you need to study everything, understand what Scripture says, come to your own conclusion. But the most accurate theologian of eschatology is somebody that has this in verse 7, that has the therefore. Jesus is returning. History is going to end. Therefore, I'm going to seek to be more like Jesus. That is the person that is the expert in eschatology. And my prayer for you and for I, then, is that we would pray this way. I'll just mention the fourth one. I won't go into it because of time. Uh, Colossians 3, 5. And this is something that, again, these are prayers that I do have when I'm praying for you individually or the church at large, and I'm not exactly sure how to pray for in some things. So then I'll pray these verses. I'll conclude with this verse, Colossians 3, 5. Therefore, put to death the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So my prayer then is this. Lord, may these precious people prioritize striking down their own sin over somebody else's sin. That is, my prayer for you that are are married, that before you are prioritizing over your spouse's sin, I'm going to strike down my spouse's sin. Over that, you need to prioritize mortifying your own sin. I see a weakness, and all of us, including me, is we can be very keen about helping other people to overcome their sin when we ourselves have sin that we need to overcome. And I think if we focus more on overcoming our own sin, then that will go a long way in helping other people to overcome their sin. Scripture never says that I'm aware of 
killing your neighbor's sin. But here, Colossians 3, 5, the, the wording of the Greek is strike down, kill, slaughter, put to death. Your own sin. And so then my prayer again for us is that you would even this spring, would you pray about one sinful habit in your life this spring and just seek to weaken it. Just seek to weaken it. Start there. I'm going to weaken W-E-A-K-E-N to get the strength of this sin, to get its strong grip on me, to get it to be, by God's grace, less. Would you pray that God would do that in your life? Well, will you think about praying and applying these points? gone over four points, four prayers that you can make. If you pray these prayers, can you, I don't want to give you a timeline, but if you start praying this way, if you make these prayers consistently, do you think God will hear you? Will God be delighted to answer these kind of prayers? If you say, Lord, help me to kill this sinful habit in my life, is God going to say no? No. I think these prayers are God's will, and that if you pray these prayers, God will be delighted to answer these prayers in your life. So I challenge you, and in fact, I double-dog dare you to pick just one of these and pray it hard and pray it all the time, consistently, and see what God does. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you hear us and that we can come to your throne of grace and that you will give us perfect help and mercy in that time of need. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.